Good morning. As I was preparing to read this morning, I was reminded of a time when I had a went to read and I had a couple of difficult words in the scripture. And so I walked up to Bob before the service and I said, Bob, how do you pronounce such and such? And his comment to me was, Larry, however you want to is fine. So this morning, you're going to hear a couple words that however I want to is fine and however you want to is fine. Our reading this morning is from Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed there and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me once again this morning? Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your word. Our simple prayer is that you would feed us. You've told us that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we ask you this morning that you, our good shepherd, would feed us. That you'd lead us to green pastures of your word. Instruct us. Instruct us in your grace and in your love for us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So I'm sure you've all heard uh, the saying, misery loves company. Um, I've heard it, and I've seen it, 
and I am convinced of the truth of that statement. Last summer, my in-laws came to visit, and uh, my father-in-law came with us to one of Jake's baseball tournaments, which is what we do over the summer. We go to baseball tournaments. And he had been there for about five minutes before he made best friends with one of the other grandpas on the team. Within 15 minutes, they had begun rehearsing their medical histories. And by the time that the baseball game was over, they knew all their doctors, all their issues. All, they just loved sharing and commiserating over their, their suffering and their pain. It's not something that just old geezers do. Uh, hang out with college students sometime, especially during finals week, okay? Uh, one, you'll hear one say, I, I've got a final tomorrow, it's going to kill me. And the other one says, you got a final? I've got two finals and a group project. Someone will say, I haven't slept since Tuesday. And the next one will say, I haven't slept since October. You know, it's this, it's this one-upmanship and suffering and misery and find kind of common ground in it. Uh, this week when we come to Acts 18 in our series, Following in the Footsteps of Jesus, we'll notice that the, the players in this chapter all share in that kind of common theme of humanity, suffering. It's If you put them in a room, it would take them about 15 minutes before they started unfolding their trials and their experiences with, with pain and suffering. Now that sounds like it's going to be a really depressing kind of sermon, right? I don't think it is. I, when I was looking at Acts 18 from this perspective, took tremendous encouragement from it. I mean, suffering is part of the human experience. We don't need to hide that or downplay that or act as though it's not. Acts 18, though, gives you this window kind of behind suffering. As you get to see God's sovereign hand working through it and in the midst of it. I think we can take tremendous encouragement from that. So Paul is on one of his missionary journeys. He's moved on from Athens to the city of Corinth. If you're going to liken these two cities to college towns, Athens would have been an Ivy League kind of place, filled with intellectuals. Corinth was a party school. It was large, about 200,000 people. It was prosperous, and it liked its fun. It was well known for its immorality. The phrase to play the Corinthian meant to be immoral. It also hosted the Isthmian Games. You know, we're coming up on the Olympics here in a few weeks. The Isthmian Games, that's another one of those words that Larry and I would have to talk about how we pronounce. Isthmian Games were the second largest games in the Greek-Roman world, right behind the Olympics. It was a prominent, prosperous, influential city that Paul goes to with, honestly, a great deal of fear and trepidation. He says, I, I, I come to you trembling and in fear, not knowing what he was going to find as he entered the city, what kind of opposition he was going to face. He comes to the city and he actually ends up staying for a full 18 months, maybe even a little bit longer than that. He works as a tent maker on the side to, to kind of earn his keep and reasons every Sabbath in the synagogue 
trying to convince the Jews in that city that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that was long promised. When opposition comes as it always does there, he moves on to the house of Titius Justice. It wasn't probably just a, a house. It probably had a, a lecture hall attached to it as he was a teacher. And there he reasoned with people, trying to convince them of the truth of the gospel. It says that many people in Corinth came to faith in Christ and were baptized, including Crispus. Crispus, the synagogue leader. He's one of the characters I want to focus on this morning. I also want to look at Aquila and Priscilla and their story and how God was using their situation to further advance his kingdom. And then, of course, Paul, kind of the major player in this chapter. As we look at these three, Crispus, well, it's four, Crispus, Aquila, Priscilla, Paul, and then we got to look at Sosthenes just a little bit. We're going to see, I think, how God is working even in the midst of those desert times and those trials, working for his people's good and to advance his kingdom. So look at Crispus first. The text doesn't give us a lot of information about Crispus. We know, A, he was a Jew living in Corinth. B, he was a synagogue ruler, which meant he was in charge of the administrative affairs, of making the synagogue in that city kind of run. It was an important position, a, very, a fairly prominent position in the community. That's about all regarding Crispus we know. Except that he believed and he and his household were baptized by Paul. Not a lot there. The text doesn't specifically mention his experiences with suffering or his trials. But you simply just have to peel back the layers a little bit to see it. Ask yourself, what was Crispus, a Jew, doing living in Corinth, thousands of miles from Jerusalem, leading a synagogue nonetheless in Corinth? The answer is that he was living in exile, as the Jewish people had been for hundreds of years now. He was part of the diaspora, the scattering of the Jews that began when Assyria conquered Israel. And led to this massive deportation of the Jews from their land. That was then followed up by the Babylonians who took the southern part of the kingdom into exile. Sent them into exile. All because of their immorality. Their infidelity to the covenant. Their idolatry that was rampant. God had disciplined his people. Allowing them to be conquered by their enemies. And sending them as punishment into exile. The prophets reminded the people that what they were suffering was God's hand of discipline and judgment. And the people understood this when they were in exile. And you begin to see this awareness that our infidelity to God's covenant led us to this situation and we can never allow it to happen again. It's during this time, 
that you begin to see the rise of parties like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who took God's law incredibly seriously, determined to guard Israel against further judgments by God for immorality or idolatry. Eventually, under a king named Cyrus from the Persian kingdom, many Jews were allowed to come back into Jerusalem and resettle their land. But it was only a partial return. Many Jews still lived in exile, still lived in the diaspora all over the ancient Near East, in Corinth, in Thessalonica, in Athens, in Rome, and beyond. Even those who returned had this sense that we're in the land, but we haven't completely, fully returned from exile yet. We haven't recovered. It's not our land anymore. We're living here, but this land is still ruled by Persians, and then Greeks. And now, in the New Testament times, they were under the hand of Rome. So Crispus is part of that contingent of the Jewish people, still living in exile, still experiencing that longing for things to be as they ought to have been, and experiencing the blessings of God. Aware that his suffering in exile was a result of his sin, his nation's sin. But even through this, even though the suffering was a result of Israel's sin, it was God's punishment and discipline. God is redeeming it for a larger purpose. The scattering of, of God's people all throughout the Roman Empire at this time serves as the foundations for the church all throughout the Roman Empire at this time and the launching pads for the missions to the rest of the world. You see this all throughout the book of Acts. Paul enters the city and he goes first to the synagogue and reasons with them there. They know the scriptures. They know the prophets and the promises. He starts there and wins converts there. And then moves on to the Gentile population. The scattering of the people throughout the Roman Empire serves as the foundation for the church. Yes, they were scattered because of their sinfulness. And as God's punishment... But God's purposes weren't done with his people. The prophets highlight this all throughout their writings. Yes, what you were experiencing is God's justice. He is just in punishing. But he's not done with you yet. His purposes are still continuing. And in Christmas you see just a glimpse of that. Just a glimpse of it. I think this is a, a lesson that we need to, to understand for ourselves. Uh, this week, I got to take my boys camping overnight. Lynn was traveling, so we used that. She won't go with us camping, so uh, we did it on our own. And uh, we'd gone hiking, and we had set up camp, and we had swum in the lake. And, and this whole time, Luke's really not getting along with his brothers very well. And so I had gotten on him. And... Uh, we were sitting around the campfire, and the other two were off somewhere, and I just had an opportunity to talk to Luke. 
And first thing I did was apologize, because I know I'm usually wrong about half the time in handing down my discipline. And I said, you know, you might not have been the instigator. I get that. I might have been wrong. But when I discipline you, it's not because I don't like you. It's because I want you to grow. I want you to develop. I want you to learn how I need to hear my own advice. <laughs> when I experience God's hand of discipline, I too often become sullen and sulk and complain. As though he's doing it to be mean to me. Instead of helping me to grow. I need to learn in those times to, to ask those questions. How is God trying to develop godly character in me through this trial? Through his discipline? How is he trying to lead me deeper into holiness? A, a deeper understanding of what it means to be dependent on him? How is he teaching me to love him? And love my neighbor better. What we see through how God was dealing with his people in exile. Was that yes it was discipline. Yes it was just. But that doesn't negate God's purposes in our life. Yes when I experience discipline. It is God being just. But it doesn't negate his purposes in my life. He's working even through those trials. That discipline. To do something in me. That's Crispus. We also get to meet in this chapter Aquila and Priscilla. They're a couple that is doubly in exile. They were living in Rome as Jews in Rome. So exiled from their land of Israel. And now expelled from Rome by Claudius the emperor in, in the year 49 AD. Uh, the historian Suetonius tells us that Emperor Claudius had ex expelled the Jewish people from Rome because so many disturbances had arisen over this figure called Crestus. C-R-E-S-T-U-S. We don't know who this historian is referring to. It is possible, maybe even likely, that he's just misspelling Christ. And that this disturbance was over people who were preaching Christ and the Jews who were opposing the preaching of Christ as the Messiah. And that they were leading to riots. As you read through the, God, or the, the book of Acts, that is not unlikely at all. You see this happening in Ephesus in Acts 19. You see it happening in Thessalonica. You see it happening a little bit here. So it's very possible that it's because of a disturbance caused over the preaching of Christ that the Jews were expelled from Rome. Or it could be that Crestus was just some unknown agitator. We don't know. But Aquila and Priscilla, Jewish Christians, are expelled along with all of the other Jewish people from the city. Now it's not technically true that they were suffering because of their affiliation with Christ. They weren't suffering for being Christians Gentile Christians, Roman Christians, weren't expelled from the city. It's more true, more precise to say that they were suffering because, frankly, of their race. They were Jews. 
And they were expelled along with all the other Jews. They got swept up in the course of affairs. It's kind of part of living in this fallen world. It happens all the time. God's people suffer injustice. Not because they identify with Christ, but simply because they live in a fallen world. An African-American church gets burned down. Not because they're Christian, but because of racism. A group of Christians living in Syria become refugees. Not necessarily because they're Christians, but because a terrorist group is sweeping through the land. Christians in New Orleans suffer because a hurricane hits indiscriminately. I'm, I've been reading, weirdly, I'm an, I know, I'm, I'm weird, uh, about the history of the church in Japan recently. It's always been a small, small minority, about 1% of the population. And one of history's cruel ironies, the largest church in Japan, in Nagasaki, was destroyed in the bombing of Nagasaki. All the attendees, and it was packed that day because it was a feast day, were killed. Not because they were coup. Using it to advance his cause. You see how God has this divine appointment for Aquila and Priscilla. They meet Apollos. Apollos is a well-learned man, fervently preaching Christ even though it says he only knows the baptism of John. He knows parts of the story. But Aquila and Priscilla bring him in and teach him the full story of Christ and the full story of what God's doing. I don't know if they connected the dots in their life. They would not have been there to do that, to disciple him, had they not been expelled from Rome. And Apollos goes on and has an incredible ministry, reasoning, persuading people of the truth of Christ. I've seen it time and time again, how pain and suffering in someone's life puts them in the place where they can minister in ways they never could have before. For Aquila and Priscilla, their expulsion from Rome put them in the place geographically where they could minister to Apollos. It doesn't always happen to us geographically, but it happens to us emotionally, spiritually, and in other ways. I've seen people who have gone through the, the tremendous pain of divorce and now use that, that experience to walk alongside and to minister to those who were experiencing that also. Those who have lost loved ones, start groups, grief share, to help others navigate the waters of grief. I know in my own life, when I'm going through a difficult time raising my kids or communicating love to my wife, I don't seek out those who seem to have it all together. I seek out those who I know have gone through it and have struggled. And because of those struggles, they can empathize. Because of those struggles, I can hear them 
better. If you've experienced pain, suffering in your life, it's easy again to become sullen and ask why. Why me? I'd encourage you instead to ask God, now what? I've experienced this. Now how will you use this in my life and in my ministry to my neighbors, to my church, to my loved ones? Aquila and Priscilla had that opportunity because they had experienced something that had to be tremendously painful, being forced from their home in their city. And that brings us to Paul. Paul's suffering is kind of right there in the open for us. We don't have to peel back the onion layers. We don't have to pry very deeply. His suffering is the most clear, though. In this chapter, it's, it's not like the suffering, the pain, the trials that he's experienced in other places. It's not stonings. It's not imprisonment. It's not shipwrecks or beatings. But he's opposed. And you get this sense that Paul is just weary. He's weary. Step into Paul's shoes with me for just a minute. He's now on his second missionary journey. Each one of these lasting, a this isn't a week-long mission trip. As exhausting as those can be, this is prolonged mission trips. Years spent traveling, ministering, being opposed. At each stop, he's facing opposition. At each stop, he's having to sometimes flee for his life. And traveling is exhausting in and of itself. We think that now, when we have to wait for a plane to come. Traveling was a dangerous, perilous experience. And Paul is now into the second, maybe even beginning of his third year on his second missions journey. And he's fatigued. He says when he writes to the Corinthians, I came to you and I was fearful apprehensive, trembling. And here in Corinth, he faces the same kind of opposition from the Jews in the synagogue that he's faced in so many other places. He's tired. You sense this. My dad used to say, fatigue makes cowards of us all. I'm sure he stole that quote from somewhere. He stole them all. But, but you begin to sense Paul waffling, maybe just a little bit. Because God comes and meets him and says, Paul, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Keep speaking boldly. I know what opposition you face. Keep speaking boldly. And he gives Paul two reasons for encouragement. First, I'm with you and you're not going to suffer harm. That's a promise Paul receives in Corinth. He doesn't receive it everywhere he goes. But here in the city, Paul, I'm with you. You're not going to receive any harm. And two, I have many people in this city. I have many people in this city. In other words, I'm on your side. I'm going to protect you. And your labor is not going to be in vain. There will be fruit. Keep on pushing on. What's interesting is this is the first city where Paul spends an extended period of time. Like I said, 18 months, maybe even a little bit more than that. Normally he ministers, is opposed, and has to flee. 
but in this city he stays. Because God, the Lord, has said to him in a vision, don't worry, don't grow weary, don't stop, don't leave. I'm with you. And I have many people in this city. Paul kept preaching, knowing that God would redeem his labor and redeem his suffering. He was opposed. The Jews did make a united attack against him, but the Lord protected him and limited, limited the attack. I love how Acts 18 does not pit God's sovereignty against preaching and evangelism. Uh, that happens too often by those who would call themselves Calvinists. And they say, if God is sovereign, if God's already predestined, then we can be lax. We don't have to work hard at the preaching and evangelism and missions endeavor. It can also happen on, by those who call themselves Arminians. If God is predestined, then why do we even have to preach and do evangelism? Acts 18 doesn't pit them against each other. God says, I have people in the city. I know who they are, even if they don't know who they are yet. They still need to hear. They still need to believe. Paul, preach. And preach boldly. And Paul was motivated. And he kept preaching. And many received the Lord and were baptized. In this chapter, Paul's suffering is really the only kind of suffering that I would label persecution. He was suffering specifically for the cause of Christ, which is a rare thing for us here in the West, but not for Christians around the world, and not for Christians throughout the centuries. Our kind of ability to live in peace and live for Christ is rare in the long history of the church. And fragile. Always fragile. We can't expect the kind of peace that we experience now to last forever. And when it doesn't, we need to have a theology in place. A theology of suffering and of persecution in place that will enable us, as Paul did, to persevere in the face of it. A theology that includes responsibility and God's sovereignty. And his ability to redeem even suffering. God doesn't cease to be sovereign when we're going through it. Whatever it is. Whether it's sickness or some kind of natural calamity or persecution. God does not cease to be sovereign when we're going through it. He works in the midst of it, and he redeems it. It's baseball season. It's the end of my son's baseball season. Their last tournament was this weekend. Through the years, I have seen dozens of coaches use dozens of drills to try and install, instill good fielding habits, good hitting habits, Sometimes the coach is explicit, and he says, we're doing this so that you develop soft hands when you're fielding. Sometimes they don't exactly explain why you're doing this drill. But later in the midst of a game, you're like, oh, 
He was having him do that so that they would learn to charge the ball hard and play through it. Got it. Sometimes you're left scratching your head, thinking, what in the world was that drill all about? One of Jake's hitting coaches has this thing that he calls the Happy Gilmore drill. He, he has Jake do this hop, skip, and a jump, land in his uh, batting stance, then he throws him the bat, Jake has to catch the bat, and then hit a ball off a tee. I have no idea. None. Other than maybe to have fun playing baseball. It really seems pointless to me, but Jake likes it. Sometimes it's very easy to see what God's doing in the midst of suffering, in the midst of travail. Sometimes you don't see it until a year later or two years later. Sometimes you're just left scratching your head thinking, what? What was that all about? If I ended the sermon kind of here, before this next character in the story, from my perspective, it would seem a little naive, a little Pollyannish. Because I've painted the picture as though we have all the answers all the time, and we just don't. Enter Sosthenes. Who was he? Why did he get beat? What good came out of that? I have no idea. Uh, it's possible that Sosthenes was a non-Christian, non-converted Jew who took over for Crispus when Crispus became a believer as a synagogue ruler. The crowds that beat him could have been Gentiles who were kind of motivated by the proconsul's Gallio's slighting of the Jews. They thought he obviously doesn't care about their affairs, and so they used this as an opportunity to take out, take out their always latent in the Roman Empire anti-Semitism and beat a prominent Jewish leader. That's possible. I don't think it's the best understanding of the text. I think it's more probable that Sosthenes was at least a Christian sympathizer, if not a Christian himself. When Paul writes his letter to the Corinthians, he names Sosthenes as his scribe who wrote down what Paul was dictating. It's a common name, though, so you can't exactly say this was this. But I think it's more likely that the crowd that turns on Sosthenes is the same crowd that brought Paul before the proconsul. The proconsul says, Gallio says, this is a Jewish internal affair. I'm not going to take part in this. Deal with it yourselves. And so the crowd turns on this Christian sympathizer or Christian individual and gives him a beating. Likely the 39 lashes prescribed by Jewish law. Okay, that gets me some answers. But why? Why Sosthenes and not Crispus? Why Sosthenes and not Paul? What redemptive purpose is served by this? And I don't know. 
And more often than not, that's where I live. In the, I don't know. But, but I see how God has worked in my past suffering. I see how God has worked in others' past trials. And I can have confidence that He is working, even when I don't know how. The Puritan theologian John Flavel said it's better to read God to read God's sovereignty like Hebrew backwards. Hebrew you read from right to left, backwards. He's saying it's better to at the end of life in essence look and say yes. That's how God's sovereignty was doing this. Maybe it requires the eternal perspective. Waiting, waiting, waiting. Trusting in God's character and His purposes and His goodness and not knowing the answer, but knowing He's redeeming all things, including my difficulties, including my trials, including my suffering. These individuals, Sosthenes, Aquila, Priscilla, Paul, Crispus, you put them in a room, they could all commiserate together. And I think they could all encourage one another. I want to leave you with three words to take away. Three words that I hope will be an encouragement to you as you experience life. The first is patience. I'd encourage you in patience. When you're going through something, fill in the blank. Know that God is working sovereignly. Know that your trials are purposeful, not random, not meaningless. And in ministry, your ministry to your children, your ministry to your spouse, your ministry in the church or in your neighborhood, learn patience. God is working. God has His people. He needs those who will faithfully minister. And He does the work of making the seeds grow. Patience. Second word, confidence. By that I mean confidence in God's appointed means to accomplish His task. It seems like every few years, a new book comes out that says... Something like, the church is outdated, we just need to do away with it, move on, do Christianity differently. Or, or preaching, it's a thing of the past, we don't need preaching. The church is God's means to accomplish His kingdom global purposes. We can have confidence in it. We can have confidence in the task of proclaiming the good news. Preaching and teaching the Bible. We can have confidence that the sacraments that God has given the church are efficacious in accomplishing what He has said that they will accomplish in sealing and feeding His people. Paul took from this vision a confidence to keep preaching, to keep on, not to reinvent something, not to do something new, but to keep being faithful to what God had called him to do. For you, that might mean confidence in prayer as effective 
as a means that God has appointed to accomplish his purpose. Patience, confidence, and hope. Hope that the pain, the trials of life will eventually be redeemed. They'll be redeemed. God will cause good to come from them. In your life, in his kingdom, everything is redeemed. The title for this sermon came from one of my favorite hymns, God Moves in Mysterious Ways, written by William Cooper, a man who was intimately, intimately acquainted with suffering. He wrote, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. We experience in life God's frowning providence sometimes. That's not all there, though. His purposes for us and for his world lie just behind that, and they are good. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that what we experience in this life, through the context, the culture, the, the times seem so different. The human condition is not. We live in a broken and fallen world. And in the midst of that, we'll experience pain. You haven't promised to spare us that. But we can't have confidence because you have promised us that you are working for our good even in it. We thank you for that hope. We thank you for that encouragement. We pray that we would carry it with us, not for the next hour, but for the next decade. That confidence that you are working even in our suffering and will redeem it for our good. Thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.